Support for Pivot comes from Vanta. When it comes to ensuring your company has top-notch security practices, things can get complicated fast. Now, you can assess risk, secure the trust of your customers, and automate compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, HIPAA, and more with a single platform, and that platform is Vanta. Vanta's market-leading trust management platform helps you continuously monitor compliance alongside reporting and tracking risk. Plus, you can save time by completing security questionnaires with Vanta AI. To learn why thousands of global companies use Vanta to automate evidence collection, unify risk management, and streamline security reviews, watch Vanta's on-demand demo at vanta.com slash pivot. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash pivot to watch Vanta's on-demand demo. Support for the show comes from Mercury. There's an art to making the complex feel simple. Everything should be in sync, so even the smallest part serves a bigger purpose. Simplicity can transform your business operations. That's why Mercury powers your financial workflows from the bank account so ambitious companies have the precision control and focus they need to perform at their best. Apply in minutes at mercury.com. Hi, everyone. This is Pivot from New York Magazine and the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Kara Swisher. Scott Galloway, I cannot believe it on the day Elon is trying to buy Twitter, is out today. I'm joined by writer, actor, and media personality, and sometimes Pivot co-host, Jihan, George Han. I'm thrilled that you're here, George. Good to see you again. Kara, it's such a thrill to be here. So thank you for asking. Of course, you're my first choice, honestly. I thought it would be fun to talk to you after. And, And by the way, Scott thinks... Every now and then, because he's such a loudmouth, we need a palate cleanser, and you are a palate cleanser, as if I had to pick one. Um, that's what he uh, said to give me. Give me yesterday. a minute. Give me yeah. a minute. I'll shred yeah. that real fast. Anyway, just did you watch the Grammys last night? I did not. I was on a plane to Vancouver. I'm in Vancouver right now. I didn't because I still have PTSD from the Oscars, and I'm in that place where if, like, yeah. you know, for the next few award shows, I'm going to have to watch them through my fingers. Right, um, right, right. I did see some clips, and I'm it sure you okay. heard as well. By all accounts, it was actually a fun show. Yeah, yeah. I think there wasn't too much Zelensky up here. Uh, Justin Bieber's outfit, I I noticed you tweeted about it. Tell me about what you thought about that. He was channeling David Byrne. Preet prompted me, and he showed up, and he said, George, can I get a ruling? And uh, uh, I immediately thought of David Byrne and his stop stop making sense, talking heads uh, drag, which was Mm -hmm. fantastic. And Bieber's just kind of doing his own riff on it. It's fine. What really... Uh, concern me is that Justin, along with many others, starting with Timothy Chalamet, yeah, uh, there is that term. So and so lost his shirt. Well, it seems like everybody yeah. literally lost their shirt. Yeah. No one's wearing yeah. shirts now. Their shirts are very last year. No, it was interesting. the The host of SNL, I'm totally Jared Carmichael. He wasn't wearing a shirt, but he looked good. I have to say, I yeah. kind of like it. What do you think? I think I mean, it depends on who's doing it. You know, and you there's took Lenny a picture Kravitz. of it. That's why you took a picture I, of it doing. <laughs> oh, of me. Yeah, in he jest. did it. Yes, in I jest. get that. You it's look good. Sort of like, yeah, you good. you're very kind. Um, I, you know, some can pull it off, and it's not necessarily yeah. an age thing because Lenny Kravitz showed up. I don't know if you saw what he was wearing on the red carpet. No, I. But didn't. he had on like tight leather pants. He mm-hmm. still pulls it off. Yeah, boots he pulls that it off. nearly went. Up. He was Catwoman from the waist down, <laughs> and then shirtless, but he wore this chainmail halter. Yeah, that he. It it works. It works. Lenny it Kravitz works. looked great. Yeah. What about Chalamet? What do you think of Chalamet? I think Timothy's having fun. 
You yeah. know, you're young, yeah, have you some good. fun. Yeah. These are the days where you're in, you know, you're 20, you're in your 20s. Everybody mm-hmm. wants to have sex with you. Like, find yeah. yourself. Okay. Right. All right. Okay. Well, yeah. s- speaking of finding yourself, Louis C.K. <laughs> apparently isn't canceled. He won the Grammy mm. for Best Comedy Album just days after Will Smith resigned from the Academy over his conduct at the Oscars. Smith, by the way, says he's willing to accept whatever punishment the Academy doles out. Um, the obvious question, why is Smith's bad behavior potentially punished and Louis back, I guess? You know, and he well, was whipping out his ding-dong. So. Yeah, he was whipping it out. That's and my word for penises, to... just so you know, ding-dong. But go ahead, move along. Or dong, as you know, <laughs> you got to ask Preet about I don't that. like that. Yeah, yeah. I don't, yeah. But, um, you know, listen, it's been a minute since the Louis situation, and comedy is tragedy plus time. So it's been a little oh. time. Yeah, yeah. Um, he is funny. Not, I'm, not ex- I'm not excusing it. Yeah. Um, I got, <sighs> in terms of, craft i think mm-hmm. louis ck minus the incident or the you know the the, the stuff many incidents apparently but go ahead um incidents yeah several he is a master craftsman when it comes mm-hmm. to joke making right um a, a modern genius uh yeah. the, this the whole situation really disappointed me um i liked and admired his work so much mm-hmm. um he's a real artist in that yeah. in that world um, I haven't seen a special, uh, you know, there were his, some of his competition in the category was, uh, uh, Lewis Black, whom I adore, Chelsea mm-hmm. Handler. Mm-hmm. That was a good uh, special. Hers was a yeah. very strong. Although Ch- Chelsea hits it with the drugs a lot. Like I get it, Chelsea, she you does. like to be high. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Well, everybody's got their thing with the Dave uh, that's the trans stuff. Um, I mean, what's interesting, I've been thinking about a lot because I did think, um, Chappelle, that particular segment was super transphobic, and he has a problem with it. I interviewed Kathy Griffin about that. At the same time, he's a genius. I think I think I've decided to give comics like a real wide berth now. And as I think right. about it and sort of evolve my opinion, in this case, I don't give him a wide berth for whip, whipping out his penis at women. I don't it's either. Gross and disgusting. Um, but it's it's an interesting issue. But um, but on stage, I give comics the hitting or the penis whipping is just ugh, I don't know what to do. It's really hard to figure it all out. Although I'm pretty much on the side of yuck, like you awful You're, creepy. Fuck, reminding me you know? of this early '90s album from Sandra Bernhard titled oh. "Excuses for Bad Behavior," and now <laughs> we're here. Like now we're living it. Yeah. Like, yep. Yep. You know? Yep. I mean, what's interesting is people voted for Louis C.K. knowing about his behavior, so they've obviously forgiven him for it. Will Slap came only after the votes were cast. So right. anyway, it's interesting. It's an Got interesting time. Got me scratching time. my head. Yeah, it is. And it's interesting. And so, you know, people want to watch it. I think people should watch what they want to watch. And, um, you know, sometimes, the, the, the you know, with Chris Rock, people are giving a hard time over the tasteless Jada Pinkett Smith joke. Same time saying you shouldn't deserve it. I, I think Jared Carmichael made a great point during his monologue on SNL. He's a comic. He's wonderful. I'm not going to talk about it. <laughs> I want to be clear up top. I've talked about it enough. <laughs> Kept talking about it. Kept thinking about it. I don't want to talk about it. And you can't make me talk about it. <laughs> but, 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 but I got a question. Do you want to talk about it? <laughs> I urge everyone to go watch his monologue because it was... It really is delicious. He really is. 
Masterful was, opening monologue. Yep. He did. So today, just so you know, we'll talk about a lot of things. Elon Musk's new Twitter, uh, not his new tweet, but his new Twitter. He's bought a big chunk of the company, nearly 10%. We'll get some news about Sarah Palin, another loudmouth. I know you love to talk about them. And then to cool down, uh, we'll speak with Dr. Lori Santos about happiness. Um, but first, Discovery and Warner Media will merge in the coming days. Advocacy groups are saying the merge company is failing Latinos. I, 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 okay. The alliance of groups, including Edward James Olmos Latino Film Institute, say Discovery has zero Latino showrunners, directors, and executives in 2021. That seems odd and strange um, mm-hmm. when you think about all the different companies with all these hits and everything else. Anyway, um, uh, that's going to happen. That's going to happen next week. And then David Sazoff takes over. Um, he's sort of an old schooler. Um, I suspect he's like, oh God, now I own a big company. He's sort of been toiling away over at Discovery for a long time where he's not gotten as much attention. So he better be ready for this kind of attention on all kinds of fronts, the way Bob Chappick uh, is on at Disney. I don't know. What do you think? You have to represent, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's not, yeah. it's kind of a no brainer, mm-hmm. you know? And they have, uh, the, the Latino community has every right to be sort of going, uh, 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 hey, hey, with this. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what's going on? Um, yeah. Yeah. Sorry, it's, not sorry. You got to represent. Yeah. yeah. I think it's interesting because when you move from, um, you know, when you're not prepared for the onslaught, because there's these partisanship and culture wars. Are, even though uh, people are actually concerned about inflation and day-to-day life, it, when you look at polling, um, it's going to be a part of the corporate scene, no matter how you slice it, uh, going forward. And so, depending on what side are, and the, and the right is just as aggressive as the left in calling people out. Um, mm-hmm. You know, Bob Chapek got caught in sort of a scissors here when he, in a, in a squeeze, because he did the wrong thing on the gays and lesbians in Florida. And then when he started to do the right thing, Ron DeSantis attacked him. So I don't envy these CEOs. They're paid an enormous amount of money, but it's a really difficult squeeze for a company when they have to pick a side, essentially. Well, I I am sometimes, yes, and sometimes not a fan of Anna Winter, but she says one yeah. of my favorite things about Which this is, very thing, you have to stand for something. Yeah. Yes, it just depends on what you stand for. Well, she's had her own share of controversies, by the way, sure. in that area. You but know, I mean, she in got general, whipsawed in that regard. Yeah, yeah, I would agree. I would agree. And I think it's hard for you. Just, gotta, you have to stand for something. Well, David, welcome to the uh, Thunderdome. I think you're going to find it a little different than, our, you know, having a controversy on Guy Fieri. Um, I, it, you know, whether, whatever. <laughs> I think it's going to be a little more than that. Because they were, that was the biggest star at Discovery. He has been. I like Guy Fieri anyway. Um, yeah. I watched uh, Diners, Trivens, and uh, whatever it's called. Um, also, Jen, the White House's Jen Psaki, maybe headed to MSNBC. She reported, hosts a show on Peacock, also on, uh, on the regular channels. What do you think about this sort of revolving door? It seems like it's not just her. It's on the right. It's on the left. Um, they just hired Mick Mulvaney somewhere. I forget where they... On uh, Mick Mulvaney at CBS. CBS, right? yeah. That got that lot got a huge controversy. So what do you think Did about you, these things? Here doing I, well, it, de- it depends. I think yeah. like Mulvaney is a different thing, and Stephen Colbert had an incredible monologue about he it. He did, on indeed. His show. CBS News has hired the ex-president's former chief of staff, Mick Mulvaney, to, quote, provide political analysis across the network's broadcasts and platforms. For more, we go to The Late Show's own media analyst, Stephen Colbert. Stephen, your thoughts? What the f***? Saki, that doesn't surprise me. You know, like the conservative ones go to Fox. Jen Saki's going to go to MSNBC. Right, right. Ke- Simone Kelsey Sanders Priest, went over there. Mm, 
Not really, but yeah. not really a surprise. But um, the difference, <laughs> as I see it from where I'm sitting, is that Jen Psaki is not a liar. Oh, you know, okay. she doesn't stand up there and lie to everybody all day mm-hmm. when she mm-hmm. does that. Well, Whereas, the right thing you know, she does, but go ahead, go ahead. I'm of good course they do, you know, but she's also very good at her job. It's it's the formula now. It's what yeah. you do. Like right? Nicole Wallace and others. I, I don't know if I, what I, I think about it. I got to say, I mean, what's his name? Sean Spicer's over at what, Own or one of them? I forget. He but went l- over there. Listen, like we're saying Sean Spicer went where? We don't know. Yeah, like, I know, I know. But point, then you know who else went? Like, uh, what was the other press secretary for uh, Trump? Kaylee McEnany. Yeah, she went and over. And then Sarah um, Huckabee Sanders. Huckabee, who's running for governor and stuff like that. They either uh, go into politics or they go on to one of these things. I still think right. it's a... Uh, this this formula that cable has has got to be overhauled. I just feel like it's just a lot of people screaming at each other, and and I get why you would scream to the um, to the to the converted, but it seems I don't know. It just doesn't illuminate, George. It, it doesn't. Illuminate. Well, I, as a junkie of public mm-hmm. radio, because I broke I broke up with cable a long time mm-hmm. ago. I you cut did? that cord oh. a long time ago, and yeah. I'm an NPR listener. And yeah. so when you listen to something like NPR, which really kind of feels like the grown-ups table, nobody's yelling. Although some people think it's shaded, but go ahead. They're, they're, they're pretty good about getting both sides. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, the people on the right show up and they say, thank you, it's a pleasure to be here. And they do their bit, but there's nobody's mm-hmm. yelling. And then when I turn on or see a clip from yeah. cable news, it is jarring. The contrast in tone. Yeah. Yeah. And it seems like sort of almost childish by comparison. It is, 100%. I try not to watch it, although I've been watching, obviously, the the imagery uh, from sending CNN's done a very good job in in Ukraine. Um, Mm -hmm. And less good job covering inflation and stuff like that, which is interesting. They could do the same thing on all these topics. Uh, It doesn't have, there doesn't have to be a war with really awful photo, you know, imagery, which I think does bring people in at the same time. Um, They're doing great reporting. Anyway, let's get on to our first big story. Elon Musk frequently owns people on Twitter, but now he owns Twitter at least a big chunk of it. (laughs) On Monday, an SEC filing revealed that Musk had purchased more than 9% of the company. That is a that that makes him the largest shareholder, and that yeah. is a big deal. I have been waiting for some rich person on the right or left to do this, and he who knows where he is. He's all over the place. Right. Scott asked a good question last week. What does Elon want from Twitter that he doesn't already get? When we were talking about starting his own, because he did a poll about whether he should start a social network. As clever as Elon is, he decided to buy one. He's never gotten even close to getting t- kicked off of Twitter. Which I people were like, oh, now he can't get kicked off. He actually stays within. You know, whether you like his Hitler memes or call. Uh, U.S. Senators, Senator Karen, like uh, Elizabeth Warren. Um, it, it's it's fine. I think this is a really fascinating. People got mad at me because I said it was fascinating, but it certainly is. And Twitter jumped on the news. Uh, so the markets expect him to do something. It doesn't mean that others won't come in. I'm surprised. He's the exactly right person to do this. And he's quite, he was actually quite close, has been close to Jack Dorsey. Um, it doesn't have integration with mm-hmm. any of his other companies. Maybe it does. Um, although Mark Benioff tried to buy Twitter at one point. So uh, tell me, what, what do you think about this? It doesn't surprise me. Um, I don't, I'm still kind of unclear about the Mm -hmm. why. Like, it's not like he needs the cash. What is this about? He hasn't been canceled. He can say and do kind of like whatever he Mm -hmm. wants. And I guess we're going to talk about it later with Mm -hmm. our guest. But in terms of like this being a pursuit of happiness, what, like, what more do you need? 
Oh, I think, no, I don't agree with you. I think he is so linked with Twitter. He loves it. He's obviously like you and I addicted to it in some fashion. I think he's got a a point of view on this about free speech. Um, You know, he did that when he did Starlink in Ukraine. No one's going to try let us decide who, what goes over this thing. Um, you know, I think it fits in exactly with his his worldview in that he probably felt Twitter had gone too far um, in policing people. I wouldn't be he is going to have if he continues and others jump in enormous pressure on this on this management. It is probably something nobody expected. Um, although when you think about it, mm-hmm. it makes perfect sense that he would be the one to do it. I always thought a rich person would move in, but if it was you know Soros or Teal, that would be too much. This guy isn't is sort of in a weird spot. You people who hate him think he's too right wing. Um, people who mm. who love him think he's just saying it like it is. Um, I would think he would be for putting Trump back on the platform. That would that would be my guess. Is he for I, that? I don't know. That's the thing. I don't. I, I think. I am imagine. He is a little bit of a well, mystery he wasn't, that way. Didn't right. want to vote for when we last interviewed. He didn't want to vote for Trump. But at the same time, I think he has some things in common, right? Like some things he agrees with. So mm-hmm. especially around this idea of being censorious. I think this is really interesting. And I think people are losing their minds that their beloved Twitter could get in the hands of a billionaire, you know, like this. And that's a lot. 10% is, gives you an enormous clout within a company to make changes. Um, it's more than most um, shareholder activists. And, the, and, and let me just say, the stock of Twitter has been very low, as Scott has talked about a lot. It is, uh, uh, this is an activist shareholder moving in in a very different way. So I don't know. I think it's a, kind of smart on his behalf. For, it's his money, but it's, it's up 30%. Yeah, Washington Post has an owner. Yeah, exactly. Right. So, I mean, he's not going to be the full owner, but he can't, well, he might be able to afford it, but um, it's certainly shareholders have got to cheer this because they felt that Twitter is undervalued for a long, long time. And it has been, it's the same as it was when on public or something like that. But so, you, but you, like, again, the idea that him, he claiming that he's being censored, exa- how exactly? I don't. Well, he, he just, no, he talks about free speech in general. I don't think he himself has claimed he's, he, I haven't seen that he might have at one point. But you've talked about this. Yes. I'm going to push back a little bit. Okay. Uh, uh, Twitter's a private company. And when we right. agree, like, these are their rules. You right. know, it's like, these are, this is the, this is their codes of conduct. And if you're not right. going to abide by it, we're a private company. This is not the public square. Twitter can kick me or you off whenever it wants to. Right. Well, it has to go along their guidelines. I'm surprised I haven't been suspended. I yet. know. No, come on. They love you. But here's the deal. He, he That's correct. It's a private company and therefore he can buy it. So, uh, and he could change the rules if he wants, their rules. If as a, as a, if he gets enough influence on the board, et cetera, right. he can change their rules. And so that's how he's doing it. He's not like yelling from the sidelines like a Ted Cruz or whoever, or Josh Hawley. He's right. actually going to buy it and change the rules. And I think, I suspect... Um, they made some very hard calls on Trump and some others, and he would take the, those breaks off. I think he would. He would change those rules. He would, I'm not sure he'd go as far as Alex Jones, but he might. You know, he might be like, look, good ideas, bad ideas, they need to be out there all at once. And of course, he's not taking in mind that these things can be terribly abused and manipulated by people. Um, but it's really, and people are really losing their, their, they love Twitter and like they don't want someone they don't agree with owning it. Um, right now, Jack Dorsey was sort of managed to be in both worlds, very free speech oriented. And then he seemed to make the right decisions at the right time, whether it was Alex Jones or Trump or whatever that the left mm-hmm. liked. But, it, uh, and he's, he's sort of got 
pressed from the right, but he managed to sit in the middle. Elon is a really interesting character to put in the middle of this because you just don't know where he's going to come out. Although he does tend towards loudmouthery, I guess. I don't know what to say. Mm -hmm. He does tend towards attacking Democrats and Biden, um, for example. Um, But he doesn't necessarily not attack the other side when he feels like it. He's just... Uh, people find him to be, some people find him to be authoritarian focused. I just, I, here's, the, but here's my, and I think Scott might feel the same way. I'm, I can't remember exactly mm-hmm. what Scott, Scott said about Scott should be it, but thrilled because like, the stock is up, but go ahead. There is that, but I'm sorry. Yeah. But like the, the fact that a guy, the way we worship the ultra wealthy and powerful yes. people, and he is excused from behavioral norms, Agreed. from manners, from like mm-hmm. being a gentleman. Like, what is your problem? The, right. What he has said about Bernie Sanders and mm-hmm. Elizabeth, um, Warren. And Elizabeth Warren. Like, what the hell happened to you? Your mother loves you, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, she does. Was it because dad wasn't in the picture? Why are you like this? Why mm-hmm. is it okay Right. For him to be a dick, he's a dick, and okay. like, but because he's rich and powerful, we're supposed to go. Well, it's okay, is it? It's not okay. It's just what he is. I, I don't. I don't think it's an excuse. He can do what he wants, and I think in this right. case, he can buy this. It's a private. Just what you're saying. It's a private company. I'm not supporting it or not. I'm just surprised no one's right. done it. Um, and I do think there's only a very few people who could pull something like this off. Jack Dorsey right. was one of them, and of course, he was even pressured because the stock. This has gotten the stock up 30%. This is literally the plot of succession at the end of the season yeah. when Alexander Sarsgaard ends, was going to be bought and then he ended up pumping his stock that allowed him to buy um, Logan Roy's company, right? This is sort of fantastic. <laughs> it's like following along yeah. those playbooks. And when I, I don't know why I didn't think Elon buys Twitter, like kind of thing. Now, he, again, yeah. he, this could be a pile on of others. There might be some in Silicon Valley that come with him. He's got a whole crew, you know, and so yeah. um, you could see, a, you know, Mark Andreessen getting in here and and others. And so it changes the equation quite a bit because it's a private company. And so right. as much as people don't like that Twitter does what it wants because it's a private company, he can do what he wants because he has money and can buy it. So And he can. You know, and I don't like, I will not, I don't want to sit next to him at Thanksgiving dinner table. Like, no, I just, oh, like, okay. I don't even want to right. be in the same but, house. But, you know, it, it's interesting that, that, that it doesn't have to fit in with his other things because Twitter is really two things, a news vehicle and a marketing vehicle. Um, and so, you know, he will have influence. People say, oh, he's not going to be. I'm like, sure will. Like anyone who mm-hmm. has that much, they can influence the board. They can influence. And there's no particular stock here that keeps one person in power. Jack Dorsey, who actually, when I interviewed Jack Dorsey last time, I said, well, who's your favorite person on Twitter? He said, Elon Musk. Um, I think they're quite close. It's my, it's my impression. And so mm-hmm. I don't know that for a fact, but it was an interesting choice. Um, and he thought he was enthusiastic and he said, said what he wants and this and that. And so I think he can have enormous influence now. And it could set off a bidding war for this thing. Mark Benioff has wanted to buy it. Um, you know, Peter Thiel could get in here. Um, there's all kinds of people who have the means to do this. And before, people didn't want to touch Twitter because it was so toxic. And in this case, why not touch, you know, why not grab it? And I, I think this is fascinating. This is going to be real interesting. And it's going to be it hard for be. Scott because as much as, you know, as you know, Elon called Scott an insufferable numbskull on Twitter, which was enjoyable to all of us, including Scott. But he loves to dump on Elon, but Elon's the reason this stock is up, which... Elon's punching down. You think? I guess. I don't know. Elon, every time Elon goes after anybody based on his money and his following, every move he makes is a punch down. 
Okay. All right. Well, in any case- That's the price of being on top. Yeah, I guess so. He doesn't need to. I've talked to him about this. I think it's ridiculous, but that's all right. He can do what he wants. Um, I, If I was his mother, I'd tell him to, to dial it back, but he doesn't. He yeah. does what he wants. Um, but I'm, I ain't his mama. Um, uh, his mother is actually a, was a model. She's quite beautiful and fair. She has a point of view. She got mad at me once. That was scarier than Elon getting mad at me, which happens <laughs> periodically. Anyway, um, I like her so much. I really do. I, I, do, I do. Even though, I do even though, like, she got mad at me. I don't care. She's his mama. That's okay. Um, he, he polled his Twitter followers and asked if Twitter's algorithm should be open source, which was interesting. And eighty percent said yes, which creates a whole nother. Uh, fork in the road here. Um, there's already an open source version of Twitter called Mastodon. So that's interesting. Anyway, we'll see what happens. Scott, I can't wait till Scott gets Scott's point of view because he must be torn today. All right, yeah. George, let's go on a quick break. When we come back, the blue red state divide is growing and we'll speak with a friend of Pivot, Dr. Lori Santos. Support for the show comes from Virgin Atlantic. Let's talk travel. Whether you're setting off on a business trip or taking that well-deserved summer vacation, we're always so focused to getting to our destination that we forget to embrace the journey. Well, when you fly Virgin Atlantic, it serves as a reminder that a memorable trip begins right from the moment you check in. That's why they offer loads of special touches to truly elevate your time in the sky, such as in-flight movies, music, TV, and podcasts that you actually can't wait to dive into. A snack bar that you can help yourself to at any time, and an iconically British high tea high up in the clouds. They've got these little salt and pepper shakers that you're encouraged to pocket as your first souvenir. And if you're feeling really fancy, how about a wine tasting experience at 38,000 feet? Uh, so really, we're just getting started. From their brilliant next level service to the food, the entertainment, the planes, the clubhouse, the crew, and so much more. These are just a few of the many special touches that make me love flying with Virgin Atlantic. And I do. I fly Virgin Atlantic a lot. Check out virginatlantic.com for your next trip to London and beyond. And see for yourself how traveling for business can always be a pleasure. Support for Pivot comes from Atlassian. Atlassian software, including Jira, Confluence, and Trello, help power the collaboration for teams to accomplish what would otherwise be impossible alone. Because individually we're great, but together we're so much better. That's why millions of teams around the world, including 75% of the Fortune 500, trust Atlassian software for everything from space exploration and green energy to delivering pizzas and podcasts. Whether you're a team of two, 200, or 2 million, or whether your team is around the corner or on another continent altogether, Atlassian Software is built to help keep you all on the same page from start to finish. That way, every one of your teams, from engineering and IT to marketing, HR, and legal, can stay connected and moving together as one towards shared, company-wide goals. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. George, do your impression of Julia Fox, please. Oh, my book. You wanted to ask me about my book. Well, it started <laughs> as a memoir, but now it's just kind of, now it's just my first book. And if I may say so, it is a masterpiece. <laughs> Explain who you're doing. I just love that. Oh, you're still going. Okay. That's not a vocal fry. That is a vocal, like, flipping that on the grill. I saw her in uh, Uncut Gems. With mm-hmm. Adam Sandler, and she was Adam Sandler's sort of secret mistress girlfriend, and she mm-hmm. was good. I thought she was very yeah. sweet and charming in the movie. 
Um, yeah. That movie is a 90-minute heart attack. Um, yeah, yeah. Really a stressful <laughs> film to watch. <laughs> anyway, you did it. That was a beautiful Twitter thing. I'm sure Elon will like it as the owner of Twitter. <laughs> I want you to do the rest of the show in that voice. No, please don't. Um, okay. Um, all right. So we're going to get on our next topic. America's blue cities are hellholes, apparently. Uh, At least that's they? what you'd think if you read the Washington Post or the Wall Street Journal. A recent piece in the Post claims that murder and rape rates in San Francisco are up by double-digit percentage points. But as Peter Calloway points out, who is a public defender, that's only true because the numbers are so low. That's a single instance raised the rate significantly in case homicides went from 10 uh, to 11 people. Um, meanwhile, the, uh, the the group, the third way, found that among the top 10 states with the highest murder rates, eight are red states. So this is this has been a meme. I've been on Twitter just this past week. I was just in San Francisco and I went, I literally went to every part of the city. I walked myself around. There are terrible parts, including downtown Soma and Tenderloin, as always. Um, they're just horrific and lots of problems in the streets. Other parts have improved. Now, everybody's complaining about petty crime. Uh, and, and I don't think it's petty. Breaking windows, cars, bike stolen, package theft. Um, people, homeless people yell, mentally ill, the homeless people yelling at people. Um, you know, I was also just in New York City. People, there's been a lot of really significant crime, very high profile crimes. But there is sort of this attack. I, I just, I, my point was that it's cartoonish to talk about any city this way. And they've seized on San Francisco in this way that, listen, there's absolute problems, no question. But it really is very complex and nobody wants to talk about that, including post-pandemic. So you live in New York City and you went through the same thing. People are going to say your city is dirty and awful and we should leave. So, and, and yet you can't ignore it. New York City, Mayor Adams recently cleaned out homeless encampments across the city. Um, and San Francisco, they, they, they did that too. They pulled out a lot of these uh, homeless encampments. So what do you, tell me what you think about, you know, these very real problems of these cities without falling into the cities as hellhole myths or shitholes, as Donald Trump might say. Well, it was the whole, the city is a hellscape narrative that kind of made me internet famous. And I did a video that went very viral. And it was that, mm -hmm. that same kind of narrative. New York City's streets are like a fucking hellscape. I mean, there is like people and violence and like looting and fires everywhere. And like, I mean, look at the, just the streets are lined with people doing things like getting ice cream, gay ice cream. Mm -hmm. And Molly Jong Fast and I actually were calling bullshit on it because we're actually mm -hmm. here. Mm -hmm. uh, that was in the summer of 20 in the wake of uh, the George Floyd killing and the um, yeah. demonstrations. I think Meghan McCain got famous for saying it was a hellhole. And yes. like, everyone was like, what the fuck are you talking then about? Then leave. Like, then get yeah, out. Then leave. You know, that yeah, is my yeah. thing. If, if like, if it, yeah. But like going back even further, Kara, there has always mm -hmm. been this very – uh, the middle American relationship with the big city in general mm -hmm. has mm -hmm. always been one that has been colored with fear and distrust, and it's where those weirdos are, mm -hmm. and you're going to get mugged and you're going to get raped, and it's where the mm -hmm. it's where weirdos go. Yeah, New York um, City usually bore the brunt of this for a hundred percent, and people mm -hmm. are afraid of the big. I grew up in Cleveland, and I remember mm -hmm. in the late '60s after the riots, there was the. You know, the white flight, everybody went to the suburbs. And to this day, there is a mistrust of city folk and public transportation is like dirty. And, you know, so the law- They've got a very a Batman version of the city, which is interesting. Yes. And again, and at the same time, you don't want to fall into the truth. See, what happens to me in San Francisco is you've got these people who want to get chess 
Bowden out. I think Bowden is how you pronounce it. Um, he was the is the DA, um, who has actually been doing more prosecution of rapes and murders, which is interesting if you actually look at the statistics. At the same time, he's been tone deaf to what very real and I don't want to call them petty crimes because if you live in a city, it becomes it creates a real. My neighbor got assaulted by a mentally ill homeless right. man. Sure. Um, you know, you and then you have those people who are trying to paint him a certain way. Um, you have this. You have the the, the board of um, education that got recalled because they went too far. They, they went too far on the left, like ridiculous. They should have been focusing on schools and they were focusing on renaming things. And I get why they do that at San Francisco, but at the time in the middle of the pandemic, parents didn't want to hear this. There's a tension around that. Um, there's He is probably going to get recalled. Um, and at the same time, um, you have these sort of, uh, th- th- those on the left who are pretending it doesn't exist, right? Mm-hmm. So it's kind of a real problem when you, or when these cities, but you, they become these, um, it's, I keep saying it's nuanced. It's nuanced. There's much more going on and nobody wants to ever, and let's talk about how to solve them versus, uh, either virtuous signaling on the left or virtual signaling mm-hmm. on the right. It's really, um, it, and again, cities are returning. Rents are up. Uh, I found New oh, York yeah. and San Francisco to be vibrant, vibrant. Um, yeah. uh, and I, I was sort of struck by New York uh, when after, and I was struck by San Francisco, same thing. Um, not, nonetheless, it's a problem. And so how do you change that? Or is it, cause there was a story in the New York times today about the, you know, the Gulf between red and blue States, mm-hmm. you know, in terms of being run, they have all these, you know, the anti-trans things and extra is happening in the red Look, States and in the blue States, they're doing the opposite, which is further protecting right. whether it's trans people, gays and lesbians, women, ex- abortion, et cetera. Still going back, like, like going back to the, what I was talking about before, look at an electoral map, look at the electoral map after yeah. 2020, 2016, the cities, blue, everything else red, you know? And the city, like the Emerald City, it's where people go to get out of where they came from to share ideas. Like I- ideas and thinking and conversations happen in cities that don't happen, not necessarily at all, but in the way they do anywhere else. Um, you know, I have been accused, uh, to answer your question. When you did that, what Managing and running a city it's a work mm-hmm. in progress. There are problems. Mm-hmm. There will always be problems. There is no such thing as a utopia in American or global society, really. Mm-hmm. And it's work. And we have problems here in New York. Uh, we always have. We always will. Is it perfect? Never going to be. Do I mm-hmm. want to live here more than anywhere else? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, I've been accused of being in this sort of liberal bubble. I'm yeah. in a bubble? Excuse me? I walk a block and I hear five or six different languages. There are people of different colors, backgrounds, um, educations, customs, cuisines, clothing, you name it, orientations, mm-hmm. gender IDs. How mm-hmm. is it where you, everybody else is? Tell me about their bubble. I love that about this. Yes, I said that once sort of when liberal- um, they were talking about, uh, it was someone, I have a lot of relatives in the red states and they are red, they are red people. It's isolated. It's like a snow globe. Yeah. And one of the things they said is, you all never visit us here. You don't get our point of view. I said, when did I see you in San Francisco to get my point of view? Like it does, it goes both ways, sir. Thank you. You know what I mean? And so it Thank was interesting. You. I was like, come over here and see how we live. Come and see. Someone tweeted at me and I thought it summed it up well. Republicans keep stoking fear and hate while we Democrats keep hoping that facts are more important than feelings. Mm-hmm. We never learn. Both sides. Like, they don't understand these are feelings and and stuff. Democrats have got to get a hold of themselves on this stuff. Right. Like, it's really hard. At the same time, 
I, I get completely offended when they that 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 the Republicans try to reduce it into this scaremongering, and this is and it it is worse. It is worse. Guess what? The city used to be New York City. I lived there during David Dinkins. It was like a Yo, I used to call it. What did I call it? A it was just before it I got here. It was terrible. I li- I went to Columbia. Then there's a Charles Bronson movie era. You know, um, there's the, and who was just, it who said to New York City, "Drop dead"? Was it Ford? Drop dead. It was Ford. Uh, Ford to city. Drop dead. And so right. it's it, it, look. If you want to live in a rural area, live in a rural area. You don't need to dunk on cities. And you you know same. You know a lot of the people who've left San Francisco. They all they do is dunk on San Francisco. I'm like, just go to your little home and be happy where you are. And so I think this is a very difficult and almost intractable problem. Some of these issues in the city. No matter what you do, whether you move these encampments, which some people are like, you can't do that to these people. You have others who, you know, are in the middle, don't like the homeless encampments, yet also feel for these people. And this is just what a city is, like you said. Was it Tom Cotton who was something recently tried to paint this picture that like, why would you want to be in the cities where you're on public transit, where you have to, you know, be in with other people and stuff. They want to make you live in downtown areas and high-rise buildings and walk to work or take the subway or ride an electric scooter or whatever it is that Pete Buttigieg takes to work this week. I remember, Kara, when I lived in Cleveland for three years, I didn't have a car, which was weird to people. And I took a bus to, there was a funeral, like not far from where I lived downtown. And my brother Mm -hmm. called me while I was on the bus and he said, are you going to Father So-and-So's funeral? I said, yeah. He said, do you need a ride? I said, no, I'm on a bus. And he goes, ugh, why? That was his response. Like, that's, you know, like that is the sort of Midwestern or smaller town yeah. perception yeah. of, oh, you're going to share space with people who aren't necessarily just like you? Yes, that's how yeah. I get around. Yeah, 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 yeah. You must it have been. It freaks a, people out. It does, it does. Here's I the was thing. an anomaly. Yes, you. I, I. You are still an anomaly. In any case, um, uh, I, I, we're going to bring because we're going to talk about happiness next. We're going to talk because Good. you know what? Be happy where you fucking are. Like stop yes. it. Like you don't need to. D- when you have to drag another group, and that applies to the left and the right, but the right does it a lot. Oh. Well, no, they both do. Honestly, at this point, I, I, listen. After enduring this Elon stuff this morning, I have a theory, and we could talk about it further. But like these people on the right with the culture war and what th- these cards they're playing, yeah. These are people who were not, they didn't get to sit at the cool kids table in the cafeteria in high school, and they're still Mm -hmm. bitter about it. And they have made it their life's mission because they're not funny, they're not clever, they're not even sometimes interesting. Mm -hmm. And so this is their their petty payback. I suppose, but the cool kids could have been a lot nicer. Let's be clear. Agreed. You know, I'm not a a fan of the mean girls. Were you a cool kid? Were you a cool kid? No, I was... Kind of in the middle. Like, I was friendly with yeah, the jocks, so I. even though I was not so. sportsy. I was friendly with the theater kids. I was friendly with the yeah. kids who wore black and smoked. Yeah, yeah um, me too. I kind of, yeah, I kind of got along with everybody. Yeah, I was right in that middle, too. It was interesting. The cool kids can be assholes, by the way. Yeah. FYI. Anyway, um, let's bring in our friend of Pivot. Dr. Lori Santos is a professor of psychology at Yale, where she teaches the university's most popular course in over 300 years. That's a long time. Psychology and the good life. She's also the host of The Happiness Lab, a podcast based on her course. She joins us today to finally reveal a secret to a happy life. Welcome, Dr. Santos. Thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on the show. So we're just talking about, um, you just wrote about Yale's happiness professors. I don't know if you like being known as that. Um, <laughs> it says anxiety is destroying her students. There's been a lot of articles uh, lately about this idea of putting, I think it was reading a David French piece and some others about this idea of 
bringing our own fears and anxieties to kids, the impact of, um, you know, social media on it, uh, the lack of, there's all kinds of reasons. So um, can you talk to me a a little bit about your piece and what uh, what you were talking about, this anxiety is destroying your students? I noticed that I have some teens and uh, I don't think it's destroying them necessarily, but it's definitely an issue. Yeah. To be fair, I didn't write that quote. That was the New York yes, Times, I guess. <laughs> you know, blow quote to kind of. But but I do yeah. think, you know, I mean, if you look at the level of mental health dysfunction we're seeing in our college students, it's really unprecedented. Right. Nationally, over 40 percent of college students report being too depressed to function most days. Over 65 percent report feeling overwhelmingly anxious. So, you know, more than two thirds. And uh, and what we're seeing is around 10 percent of students regularly report being suicidal or at least feeling so suicidal that they've seriously considered taking their life in the last year. So that number is more than 10% nationally. And like which could be pandemic related, correct? No, this this is actually pre-pandemic. So the last national college health report was 2019. And so some of these numbers have gotten even worse. And so there's this really open question of like, what has happened? These rates of depression and anxiety in many cases have doubled in just the last eight or nine years, right? So it's not just the normal like, oh, maybe it's more awareness or, or, or oh, it's the pandemic. Or we're, like, we're, or, we're, or we're studying it more. It's being studied. Maybe they were unhappy before and we didn't know it. Yeah. And like I think that. I think there is something to that. You know, you know, students before a test, you know, back in my day would say like, oh, I have butterflies in my stomach. Now people are like, I'm yeah. anxious. Or, you know, I'm upset that, you know, this boy didn't call me back. Now I'm depressed. Right. So I think we have more clinical terms for this. But again, if you look at, you know, real markers, again, cases of suicide, these kinds of things, all of these rates are going up and they're going up quite significantly. I mean, the the big question is like, why? And I think we don't have Mm -hmm. a great handle on exactly what the answer is yet. Well, what would be your your feeling if you had to, you know, obviously Facebook got an enormous amount of uh, attention for Instagram. And I don't think the research is quite there yet. I think it got a lot of attention because politicians and the media can see, seize on this. It's anecdotally quite true. You can see it, yeah. right? If yeah. you talk to kids. I mean, if you um, plot the rates, even just if you plot the rate of iPhones, right, right? Just having a smartphone and these rates of depression, the curves hang on to each other perfectly. But of course, correlation doesn't equal causation. Um, another thing that we know is just different is parenting styles, right? Um, you know, I get anxious as a Yale, you know, Professor, I get anxious parents calling me about students' grades, about students' rooming situations. You know, this just, again, it's anecdotal, but it's different than it was five years ago, where you really have parents stepping in to solve kids' problems in a different way. And and lots of scientists like Julia Lithgott-Hames writes about this a lot. She's a former Stanford dean who talks about, you know, what does this teach kids? It teaches kids, like, everything's scary, you know, from the tiny tiniest roommate problem to getting a B-plus on an exam that is a, a level that parents need to call in. But it also teaches kids that they're helpless in this. There's a sense of kind of learned helplessness that's happening in this generation where they don't solve their own problems. You know, it's interesting because I'm kind of the opposite. People would imagine I'm much more controlling, but I'm not. Like I was talking to one of my kids yesterday about something. I'm not going to say what it is because it's very private. And it was something significant. You know what I mean? And I literally was like, "Mm, you got to figure that out for yourself. I don't know. I don't have an answer. And often with my sons, uh, the older ones, um, I'm often like, yeah, well, Good luck. Good luck with that. Hope it works out for you. And I think it's um, something I I tend to let them do because they need the struggle. They mm-hmm. need to figure it out um, more than others. But I do see parents, it drives me crazy at the schools, doing everything for their kids. You know what I mean? Like making sure there's like the most safe they could be. Um, and it's I find it really disturbing to watch these poor kids. 
And we know, I mean, there's some lovely work on what happens cognitively when you do this to kids. Um, there's a, a scholar, uh, Julia Leonard, here at Yale, and she studies you know, if you give just, say, toddlers a like problem box to solve, like a puzzle box that, that could, you know, it's hard, but they can kind of figure it out. And you, you look at what happens when a parent intervenes, when they say, oh, let me just do that for you. What, you. what she finds is that if you give them new puzzle boxes, kids will look to help more quickly. They'll generalize, basically, I'm not good at solving these problems. Otherwise, why would someone jump in? And so we think of all these actions as just kind of getting kids through the hump. But functionally, what parents are doing in these cases is teaching kids, I don't believe that you're able to solve this, which either means the problem is huge or you're just not that good at this stuff, right? You know, you maybe you just don't have the skill set for this. And, you know, I think parents don't mean to be doing this. This isn't what parents intend to some do. do. Yeah, maybe some, some do. do. Uh, but hopefully not many. Um, but, you know, the, the consequences are bigger than I think parents sometimes assume. I agree. You know, when I was growing up, the notion that like there were there were I went to an all boys high school, and there were guys who whose parents kind of did everything for them. I was lucky enough to have parents who didn't, you know, they were more like Kara. You know, like you gotta figure that out on your own, or you're gonna have to go do that apologizing. You're gonna have to have that conversation. I'm not going with you. Um, and I've often had this, it's kind of a joke, but I'm kind of not joking when I say like, I, it kind of feels like if your teenage kids like you, you might not be doing it right. Yeah, exactly. Um, I, I always liked my parents, of course, but when I was a teenager, God, I wanted nothing to do with them. So yeah, if you're a parent and you're like, if you're worried that your teenage kids don't like you, don't worry. <laughs> like, I don't you're know. I can't say it because I don't have kids, but Yeah. yeah. You know, it's. I think it's a similar thing. If if you're if you know if your teenage kids don't like you, you might be doing something right. If your teenage kids are messing up, you might be doing something right. You know, if they're getting the worst grades they've ever got in their first semester of college, that's good. That means they're challenging themselves. That means they're sorting it out on their own and making the appropriate kinds of failures. I think today's kids are really failure deprived, and I think it it really connects to their mental health. Right? It's one of the reasons you become anxious if you've never messed anything up. Then the tiniest mess up seems enormous. It seems like like the kind of thing that you should be really worried about. And so, yeah. So so one of the things that's interesting when you talk about something like that is the ability, is, you're talking about resilience in a weird way. And I know that there's been books about that or grit or whatever you call it. It, it, it is much harder with social media there. There's no question. I just happen to have kids that aren't ruled by it. Um, but they definitely, you know, I've had so many instances of people leave you on red, like uh, on Snapchat or uh, judging if they don't text you back because of the immediacy of it, it definitely does affect them. I, that was one thing I was talking about with one of my sons. He's like, well, they didn't text me back. I'm like, well, then they didn't. I don't know what to tell you. You're going to go play the guitar. I don't know what to say. Um, but, um, but it does bring on an extra added level of not just FOMA, but also anxiety that you're somehow left out. Do you, when you say the co correlation doesn't mean causation, where are the studies on this? Because I do think it's very clear that for not just kids, but everybody, this constant barrage of information, um, which is either upsetting or, you know, you can see visual stories. Um, not that they weren't there when we were growing up, but it was much, you know, we had Nixon, we had everything. We, you know, the falling apart of this and that and this, or pollu I, at one point I thought pollution was going to kill us all that week. Yeah. Um, but wh wh how, wh how do you look at social media and what, 
where it is? How do you study that? Yeah, it's tricky, right? Because we don't have a great control group, right? I mean, ideally, we'd have a control group of a whole generation that wasn't on social media. But if there was such a control, I don't think such a control group exists. But if they did, they'd be maybe non-neurotypical <laughs> in their own way, right, in the current generation. So it's hard. Um, what we do know is like anytime you look at these kinds of correlations or experimental studies where you have people get off social media for a little bit of time, rates of things like depression and anxiety do go down. Um, but it's nuanced, right? Um, you know, there's evidence, for example, that active Facebook use, Facebook in particular, Facebook's the platform that's been studied the most just because it's been around the longest, frankly. But active Facebook use where you're really connecting socially and picking part in groups, not just passively lurking, there's some evidence that that doesn't have as much of a mental health hit as, for example, passive social use. So it kind of depends how you're using it, um, who you're using it with, what you're using it for. I actually think one of the the biggest hits that social media has on on teen mental health is through their sleep. Um, there's lots of evidence that, you know, a ton of 15-year-olds wind up sleeping with their phone. Even 13-year-olds are sleeping with their phone. And I know what happens when my phone is with me at night. It's very tempting to look at it. It means I'm sleeping less. And just a hit on sleep can have a huge effect on students' mental health. And I actually think we could solve a lot of this mental health crisis if we just got students students to sleep more. And one of the easiest ways to get them to sleep more is to move their phones away from, I think that one That's of the, an Ariana Huffington thing. Yes, remember exactly. She had a bed yes. for her thing. Yes. Do you remember the bed? She tried to give me one. I'm like, get that bed away I, from I me. Have I have one and I actually, actually she, have my phone sleep in the bed and it's helpful. Like the phone goes to it bed. To she did. She did. Oh, phone goes so. to bed. I go to bed. Wait, but, there's a there's a bed for your phone? It's like a yeah, little it, like bit doll charger. bed, but it's for your phone. So it's like you don't have to be wow. worried about your iPhone. It's comfy. It's over. It's got a little charging port. It's very functional. It's somewhere else. It doesn't go on. <laughs> it sounds so, like a master. You know, the reason I do keep my phone. <laughs> he's, he's channeling Julia Fox, who makes him happy. Um, so are, are, are billionaires happier than the rest of us? What are the things you look at in this class besides, I'm going to get away from social media, but what makes people happier than others? Do, do you imagine? Yeah, it's not what we think. It's not money. It's not accolades. It's not this stuff. Well, I, I should I should update, right? So it depends where you are. If you're living well below the poverty line, if you can't put food on your table or a roof over your head, yes, giving you right. like a living wage is definitely going to help. Right now, though, in the U.S., or at least in a, in a 2009 study in the U.S., um, if you start earning over 75K, uh, doubling or tripling your salary isn't going to have any improvement in your long-term happiness. Um, it's not going to reduce your stress levels. It's not going to improve your positive mood, even though we think it will. And I think this is the problem. You know, one of the biggest things I teach in this class is that we have misconceptions when it comes to our happiness. We think more money. We think better grades. We think more accolades. We think changing our circumstances is the path to happiness. But often it's about changing our behaviors and our mindset, right? Becoming a little bit more present, becoming a little bit more grateful, um, engaging in more social connection in real life. These are the paths to happiness. You know, it's not getting the raise and the you know promotion at work that we thought. It's really different than we often expect. The jump from happiness between someone like you said, who's making at least 75K, basically your housing, your food, and your health insurance is taken care of like relatively painlessly. And the measure of happiness from those people to billionaires is not that large from what I understand. 
That's right. There was one, you know, there's always new studies and kind of controversies over this. There's a famous paper by uh, Danny Kahneman and Angus Deaton, two separate Nobel Prize winners, right? That was the paper that right. showed, you know, 75K was, you know, at that point, you're, any, any more funds, you're not going to get much happier. There was a recent paper by Matthew Killingsworth that sort of challenged this. And what he finds when you look at really big ranges, yeah, you can see some wiggle room. But the wiggle room, when you look and really look in the paper, is like, Teeny. It's like you can go from a 60 out of 100 on a happiness scale to a 61 out of 100 on a happiness scale, but you have to quintuple your income. <laughs> you know, you have to go from like $100,000 to $700,000. And, and what I often say to my students is like, okay, you could put in the time and energy to quintuple your income, or you could write three things you're grateful for in your gratitude journal at night, and that will have a five-fold increase on your happiness bigger than quintupling your income, right? You know, you could talk to a stranger on the train, and that will vastly and much more significantly improve your positive mood. So it's not so much that money doesn't make us happy. It's like it doesn't move in as big a way as we assume. I was talking to Scott uh, one of the last times I saw him last week, actually, and I was I mentioned my tailor, the guy around the corner from me who like you know alters my clothes. Uh, he's from Korea, loves what he does, loves his job. He's not making a fortune. I walk the dogs past his shop at like ten thirty on a Sunday night, and there he is. I can hear classical music playing, and he's like mending a garment or whatever he's doing. And I say to myself, he won. Mm-hmm. He won. He is so content there, you know, whether it's the bartender who loves his job and is not looking to have a yacht and a penthouse. Like, if you found that happiness, that contentment, you won. Yeah. On my podcast, The Happiness Lab, I interviewed this guy who who on Yale's campus goes by Marty. He's the pest control guy. He's the guy that, you know, if there's a mouse in some student's room or we find a cockroach in the dining hall or something like that, he gets called. And he's the happiest guy. And and when you talk to him, he's like, I think I have the best job. I got like a company truck I get to drive around in. I have all this social connection. I talk to people all the time and I help them solve their problems. There's something that they feel kind of a little gross and shameful about. And I come in, I get to chat with them and I fix it. And he's like, I have the best job. And it's like, you wouldn't think like, you know, snakes and creepy crawlies and cockroaches would make your job great, but he's happy. And I think that's that's a message. Not a single one of my Yale students is like, when I grow up, I want to be a pest control operator. Right, right. right? No, right. they want to just But they all still think they want to be happy. Yeah. And so, so I think, you know, we need to kind of come to terms with the conception we have about what a happy life is might be wrong. It's like, Talk a little bit about those connections. Is it having family? Is it friendships? Is there... Um, is there something that adds more to the other than anything else yeah, to it? Yeah, it's really all of the above. I mean, we, we you know, it's great to connect with really close personal friends and close family members, but there's evidence that talking to a stranger on the train on your commute to work can significantly improve your positive mood, right? It's really just other humans in real life, not scrolling through your social media feed, right? Like like talking in real life. And, and I think, you know, we've all kind of felt the hit of this a little bit with working from home and a lot that's gone on in the pandemic. We're losing these weak tie mini interactions. But those are the things that often, you know, fill up our leaky happiness tire, as it were, much more than we often expect. So three million students have taken this course on Coursera, correct? Some it's enormous amounts. Why do you think so many people are seeking this answer to happiness? 
Yeah. I mean, I think we've always been worried about happiness, right? Like it's in the Declaration of Independence, right? It's like up there with life, liberty, right? But I think lately, you know, we've been sold a lot of false promises. I mean, look at my Yale students. I think so many of them believed if I killed myself in high school and I didn't sleep and I put everything on hold, then I'd get to college and I'd be happily ever after. And then they get to Yale and it's like, up oh, the carrot just moved. Now I have to get into medical school or I have to get my investment banking job, right? And so, so I think there's all these cultural notions. The achievement of, wheel. It's exactly. I talk about it all the time when I meet students. It's the American dream, not the American promise. Yes, exactly. But the dream is wrong, right? Like if we dream to, you know, have a close relationship with our family members and a job that just gave us enough money, we might we might be good. And so so I think that the the reason that so many people are seeking out answers is like, you know, the current culture isn't giving them to us. People are putting time and effort into improving their well-being and, and they're putting the effort in and it's just not working. And so they're like, something must be wrong. And so I think you know, that was true before. And then the pandemic hit. And I think people were really looking for answers of how to navigate this stuff. People had a little bit more time on their hands. And so many folks signed up online to learn more. And they were worried. What makes, uh, I'd like to know what each do, what makes each of you happy? What makes me very happy is when I am able to, my dreams are not grand, you know, when I'm able to pay for my housing, my food, and feed my dogs and have my health insurance taken care of painlessly. And maybe some nice shoes to wear, um, like, and, and friends to share things with. You know, I love sharing things and I love being with friends. So that makes me very happy. What about you, Dr. Santos? Yeah, I mean, my husband makes me happy. Uh, my students mostly, most of the time, make me happy. Springtime makes me happy, just like walking around and, and seeing the daffodils poking up. Yeah. I've just planted some pumpkins and they're doing that thing where they're, you know, they're just coming out. And I'm like, baby pumpkins, baby pumpkins make me happy. I think a final thing that makes us happy that we're all deficient in right now is time. Um, a lot of work in social science on what's called time affluence, the sense that you have some spare time. Um, I know when I'm famished on that, then that I'm not feeling so good. So yeah, those are the time things that I'm happy. Time affluence. Affluence, time affluence. You're affluent in time, George. Um, I like to clean. I, I mean, I love my family. I love my kids. My kids make me the most happy, but- I was going to say, your kids, your kids bring you a <laughs> they, lot of joy. They Anybody do, they do. I, every time, one time I, I was having a problem at work and um, I, I literally said this to someone, they were being a pain about something dumb. And I go, you know what? I don't give a fuck. My kids love me. <laughs> and they were like, what? And I'm like, you, fuck you. I was like, Mic fuck drop. <laughs> Mic drop. It was great. They were sort of shocked. I was like, yeah, I don't really care what you think of me. Um, but what's interesting is when I was talking to these students, getting back to students, and then I want to finish up with one more question, and George might have one more, is I was having dinner with a group of Stanford Business School students, all of who were, who were delightful. It was really a great group of people, and it was uh, men and women. It was quite diverse, and it was really lovely. But they all definitely had that, like, anxiety Mm-hmm. And they asked me what um, uh, what they should do, like you know what I mean, to be to, to be successful. What's my 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 prescription? And I said, you got to you got to quit more. Mm-hmm. You got to just stop. And like I think I'm much more successful than most people because often when I'm unhappy, I stop. I'm like, nope, now I'm nope. going to do this. And I think when you're on that, achieve. I do that with my one of my sons right now with a college thing. I'm like. Like, what if this? I'm like, don't friggin' worry about it. It'll be fine. Like, it's just, it literally will not matter at all. And so one of the things I used to do with my, in my kids' school, with homework is my, my bet noir at schools, right? The, the amount of homework that they spend doing, it gets them anxious. And I used to tell them, don't do it. It doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't matter. And I would have teachers call me, stop telling your children homework doesn't matter. I'm like, it doesn't. It doesn't. Let me just give you that piece of information. It doesn't make them smarter. It certainly makes them more anxious. And, you know, if they get 
bad grades, so be it. I don't know what to tell you, but they're very smart kids. And so it was a really interesting thing when my son then got a D in Spanish. Um, and uh, this is my this is why I decided I was the best parent ever. And he goes, I go, Louie, a D, what the heck? And he goes, at least it's not an F. And I was yeah. like, well, it is an F, but good for you. Good for you. Anyway, Good answer, uh, Louie. Good answer. Um, I, George, any last questions? Doctor, the older I get, I feel like the less I know and also the less I need. Meaning, when I was in my 20s and I moved to New York to pursue, you know, work as an actor and stuff like that, it's not – dreams have shifted over time. But the older I get, I find that the less I need. I don't have grand designs. I don't need a palace. I'm not looking for a Ferrari. You know, I just want a few good relationships. I want to have some good laughs before I go. Um and enjoy the people in my life. I don't need like the stuff, the catalog that gets thrown at us, particularly on social media. Um, is that, am I crazy? No, I that's my question. That sounds like those sound like great strategies, you know, go for experiences, not material goods, like be present, be social. All of those are right, you know, right out of my happiness playbook. But this is also something that gets better in middle age. You know, if you look at the arc of happiness across a life, it too is not what you expect. I think you look at every wrinkle commercial and think like, oh, my gosh, as soon as I hit 40, it's downhill in terms of happiness. But actually, uh, kind of as you leave work, as your kids leave the house, that's often a big boost in happiness around that time retirement, another <laughs> Big so sad. Happiness. Um, <laughs> but it's not sad. You know, the trajectory is an upward one. Um, you know, as you, <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, uh, one more. Oh, almost there. That almost there. I think is the the answer. But yeah, I, yeah. So I now have a I have a four month old. So. Oh, I see. Yeah, that'll you know, yeah. eighteen years it goes by fast. But uh, um, I don't care. I'll be dead. <laughs> but but that's the thing that it's. It's a thing to remember, a thing to look forward to is that, you know, even as your body's kind of breaking down, overall, statistically speaking, your well-being will probably go up. What do you think the biggest challenge to finding happiness is? If you had to, I know you can't, you don't want to stack rank them, but there probably is uh, one big challenge. And what's wrong with sadness, I guess? What's wrong with sadness sometimes? Well, the biggest, I think, challenge to happiness is that we get it wrong. Like the, we, we kind of have these things that we're going for that we think, oh my gosh, once I get it, you know, I get the Ferrari, I get the accolade at work, I get the A in Spanish. You think you're going to get that and it works, but this is not how happiness works. So I think the biggest problem with happiness is that we get it wrong. And the sadness question is relevant. One thing that we get wrong is that we think like true happiness, a true sense of purpose in life is really about being happy all the time. Like it's some sort of yellow smiling emoji, like beaming at you. And that that's not right. That's toxic positivity. What we know from truly happy people is that people experience all kinds of emotions. Like truly happy people are okay with their negative emotions. They have the full gamut of the kinds of experiences that happen. And so I think this is another thing we need to do and that, that especially, you know, my, my college students need to do is to find ways to be okay with negative emotions. It's okay to be sad. It's normative to be sad in the face of it's sad part stuff. part of the it's, human experience. Yeah, normative yeah. to be anxious in the face of certain experiences. And so we need to allow these things that might not feel so good at the time, but as you said, allow for a full human life. Heartbreak and pain, they're part of the journey. It's true. Do you, do you think it's going to change or is it just we've dragged these kids into our own unhappiness in a way that's really 
significant compared to before. I'm hopeful. I mean, I'm hopeful that, you know, a quarter of the entire Yale student body wanted to take my class. They were looking for evidence-based practices and evidence-based strategies they could use to feel better. You know, when I see these kids, they don't like this culture of feeling depressed and and anxious, and they really want to do something to change it. And so when I talk to the young people today, I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful that we can come up with a better path. It's an interesting thing because I I spent a lot of time thinking about this with my own kids and the kids that I talked to. and one of the things that at this dinner I had, I was talking about, I was I was ending a relationship, not not one of the most current ones. And this person dragged me into couples therapy, which I always think is the last stop on the on the relationship train. Um, and uh, the doctor said, well, "How are you, how are you feeling, Karen?" And I said, "I feel like watching television." And she was like, "What?" And I said, "It makes me happy. I like watching television. And this doesn't, so I'd like to watch television." <laughs> <laughs> and she goes, and then my person I was with goes, you're blocking. I said, it's working. No. <laughs> I was like, I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> it was great. And I was very happy. I was wow. like, give me a, give me a, give me a fudgical and an episode of Law and Order. I'm very happy. I'm very happy. You said very. fudgical. Wow. Fudgical. I love that. Fudgical. Fudgicals will make you happy. I'm going to write a book yes, called they the, Fudgical, do. <laughs> the Fudgical Lab. Anyway, uh, Dr. Santos, this is a, I love your podcast. It's great. It's called The Happiness Lab. I did not get into Yale, which made me unhappy briefly, and then I didn't give a fuck. Um, but um, but uh, but I'm <laughs> I'm revisiting all the, com- the schools right now that I didn't get into, so it's kind of a reminder. Um, anyway, you can find The Happiness Lab wherever you listen to podcasts, and if you're lucky enough to get into Yale, you can have her as a professor, but you can also see these courses on Coursera. They're well worth your time. Thank you, Dr. Santos. Thanks so much for having Thank me. Thank you, Dr. Santos. All right, George, I'm going to, when I see you next, I'm bringing you a fudgical. I'm just telling Please. you. Please. By the way, you know what something else is going to make you happy? Watch The hmm. Adam Project by Ryan Reynolds always makes me happy. Uh, I see. love his movies. I know. I don't care if they're shitty. They're great. Good. All right, George, one more quick break. We'll be back for predictions. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. Eurovision is here. This year's contest gets underway this week in Malmö, Sweden, but this year's contest comes with a dose of controversy. I'll give you one guess as to what people are mad about. Yes, correct. It's that. Organizers of the Eurovision Song Contest say they are assessing whether Israel's entry breaks the rules on political neutrality. I think it's a shame. I think there's no way 
that, that Israel should be able to participate in your Pro-Palestinian protesters are taking to the Swedish streets. More than a thousand Swedish artists, including Robin, have called for an Israel ban. Some European politicians are joining them. Charlie Harding from Switched On Pop joins us this week on Today Explained to help us figure out if Europe can sing its way out of this situation. Okay, George, it's time for predictions. I'd like you to make one. Please do. All right. This is not a big reach, but my prediction okay. is that we are going to see more horrible behavior from men that goes unpunished or even rewarded. Oh, dear. I, I was honestly surprised to see that Louis won. Like, that actually mm -hmm. surprised me. It was like, welcome no. back. Really? No, doesn't surprise really? any women. But again, I, you know, the prediction is that we're going to see more men behave badly yeah. And go, it's going to go unpunished. They're going to get away with it. Yeah. I'm one of these people who does not get excited on Twitter when something is discovered in this investigations on January 6th or Trump. Right. Because I yeah. think Trump is going to get away with all of it. Mm. And if he doesn't, call me when he is not arrested, not on trial, but when he is convicted. Then I'll get yeah. excited. All right. Yeah, because people get their hopes up in some fashion. I'm one of these weirdly, people. Yes, they do. You know what I say? Hmm. Guess what? Someday he's going to die, just like the rest of us. He's discovered in this investigation. This is true. This is how I think about it. I'm like, well, you know, someday. And who knows? And it's not my job to to uh, to, to bring him to hell or heaven or hell. If, all if that it exists KFC, at all. You, all, all that, that KFC. No. You, you think it would happen no, sooner. Some people do well with that stuff. Look at Rupert yeah. Murdoch. He's still hanging on. And then there's, you know, you know what I say? Um, oh, Jerry, Jerry, Jerry Hall. Hall, Powerball winner. Yeah. I mean, yeah. what a girl. Oh, I guess. But you know what? Think about what you have to do for that. I know. I'm just she doesn't saying. seem unhappy. I saw the Warhol Diaries. She seems okay. Yeah, that's good. That's a fair point. Okay, I think Judge Jackson's nomination to the Supreme Court, I think it will pass, but mm -hmm. some of the Republican uh, virtue signaling has been really depressing, likely qualified. They all say she's qualified. Uh, they all think she'd be a good colleague on the court, and they just can't just but suck it seriously, up. Seriously, do you know this? You know how infuriated mm -hmm. this goes back to what I was saying about these people who weren't allowed to hang out with the cool kids at lunch? Yeah. Or weren't like invited to their parties or whatever. Yeah. And they're furious about it. And they're furious that there is this black woman who is the smartest one in the room and it drives them nuts. Behind the scenes, they like say an opposite thing, which makes me, I literally sometimes walk away from these people when they do that. I'm like, I don't want to, I don't care. You're not, I'm yeah. not going to like it. I like you less if you, I'd like you to be crazy as ever. Speaking of which, my prediction, Sarah Palin announced that she'll run for Congress in Alaska. I think she's going to lose badly. I hope I will. I'll be sort of peripherally tuning into that show. I don't think Alaskans go for that bullshit. I just think they don't. They're much more, you know, they can be very conservative, but I don't think they're that kind of conservative. I don't think they're crazy. The only thing she has hope is if the crazies come out, and I think they're less crazy up there in Alaska, although there's plenty of crazies everywhere. It'll be Edition, more work for Sarah Palin. And, anyway, I think she's going to not win, and it's going to be another sad, pathetic chapter to her sad, pathetic life. At, sort at, of peripherally she electrified the populace for a very brief second. Um, and she's managed to dwindle it down ever since. Anyway, George. Kara. What are you going to do to be happy today? Tell me one thing. Today, I'm going to take my dogs for a nice walk in Central Park. All right. You're, I think you're a very happy person. You bring happiness to people. I love your stuff. Oh, thank Twitter. you. I try. Anyway, George, thank you for doing this. That's the show. We'll be back on Friday for more with uh, with Scott Galloway, who will probably is now twisting himself into pretzels <laughs> trying to figure this Elon thing out. Um, and I can't wait to hear his perspective because it's like, it's hard because so many, so many he sides has, for him. 
Scott's got feelings about it, like really he's got distinct feelings on feelings all sides because he wants the stock to go up. Anyway, I think he sold right. his Twitter stock, I believe. Anyway, uh, will you please read us out? Uh, as I would be we delighted. Thank you. It'll Jordan. be a masterpiece. Today, <laughs> <laughs> today's show was produced by Lara Naiman, Evan Engel, and Taylor Griffin. Ernie Endredot engineered this episode. Make sure you're subscribed to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Now, thanks for listening to Pivot from New York Magazine and Vox Media. We'll be back later this week for another breakdown of all things tech and business. A masterpiece. 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 Masterpiece.